Osiris. I'm going to suggest here that you were one of the most ambitious people I've ever spoken with, while also being one of the most ambition-averse people I've come across. Okay. Yeah, I think there's definitely something to that. I don't know about the most ambitious, but uh, in terms of just wanting to do what I do and not really caring where that takes me. I don't know any 16-year-olds at all who start their own record label and who go into school and that's your market. Nobody. <laughs> Welcome to Discography, the music obsessives podcast that gives freaks like you and me the chance to connect with a brotherhood obsessed with rating the entire discography of every single artist and band that ever mattered. I'm your host, Dave Gebro, and with three new episodes each week, you're going to gain a comprehensive knowledge of an act's history and output in the time it takes to listen to one album. Now that we're two and a quarter years into our existence, Discography has hit a milestone. I am thrilled to announce that we have partnered with the podcast network Osiris Media, the leading storyteller in music. You can check out all their music podcasts at OsirisPod.com. And in this episode, we'll be turning our spray cans on Unrest in Air Miami. Along with our very special guest, Mark Robinson himself, who's gone through his entire catalog, every single release he's ever had a hand in writing, performing, and or guesting on, and rated them all from zero to five stars. This is part three of a batshit crazy 16-hour interview, which I'm calling Goodbye Unrest, Hello Air Miami, 1992-1995, in which we discuss tons of stuff, including a forensic track-by-track rundown of Unrest's classic final LP, Perfect Teeth, details on Mark's abandoned plans for Unrest's unmade fifth album, and my tireless interrogation of Mark Robinson on the subject of why the hell Unrest broke up right at their pinnacle. If you're a Mark Robinson super fan like me, you'll want to turn this free version off right now and opt for the ultimate director's cut of this episode. The lieutenant cut on our Patreon features 19 minutes of essential additional material, and the ultimate director's cut on the major tier features a whopping 32 additional minutes. Both cuts feature overviews of entire releases that we had to cut for time, as well as kick-ass rock nerd repartee I hereby deem unskippable. And you can find the Ultimate Director's Cut in our Patreon record shop for mere pennies at patreon.com slash discography slash shop. Or just subscribe for the complete versions of all our shows. Even if you're on the fence, just head over there because it's finally free to become a basic member. Okay, first things first, you need to know just how seriously I take this craziness. Discography is a music obsessive's dream come true. The guest and I explore an artist or band's entire discography in a futile but valiant attempt to reach a higher truth, which often is cleverly disguised as a nerdy compendium of star ratings and lists. The show is heavily researched, and the music is always reassessed with fresh ears. We don't just cover albums. Uh-uh. We do a searingly honest deep-dive analysis of all EPs, singles, comp tracks, relevant solo work, and sometimes even bootlegs and live stuff. 
Every release is slapped with an objectively accurate star rating between zero and five, which allows us all. The real reason we do this, the Tootsie Pop reward at the center of the rock and roll lolly to come face to face with the true shape of an artist's overall arc. Coming up, we've got Robert Schneider rating the Strawberry Alarm Clock, an interview with Phil Manzanera from Roxy Music, Kula Shaker, The Lemon Twigs, and the three surviving Diedrich siblings rating everything they ever released as one of the greatest bands of all time, bar none, The Free Design. Oh, and Michelle Phillips, along with Mamas and Papas biographer Richard Campbell rating everything they ever did. So don't miss out. Open up your listening app right now and subscribe. And away we go then. Today's guest is a man of action. At 16 years old, he set up his own label called Teen Beat to release the music his band Unrest was making, along with the super cool sounds his friends' bands were making. Over 550 fetishistically cataloged releases later, Teen Beat is still a going concern. Keep in mind, I'm not much of a sports guy, but this man's right arm, his strumming arm, is more impressive to me than any pitching legend in baseball history. There is no doubt that today's guest should ensure that shit, like J-Lo did her tush, because it's brought so much joy to so very many, not to mention the enjoyment that fucking limb brings to his taste buds every day at noon or thereabouts as he scarfs down his daily peanut butter and jelly sandwich. On a less delectable note, I've unfortunately annoyed him half to death in the weeks leading up to this summit meeting. This, the most in-depth interview I've yet done for the show, my notes amounting to a whopping 201 pages. He's revealed to me a few days ago that nobody annoys him and that I, in fact, both annoy him and trigger him, (laughs) although we've since made up, but I don't hold it against him, even though it brought me to the verge of tears at that very moment since he is the most incredibly prolific human being whose qualitative yardstick is still in perfect working condition he's been a musical deity to me for nigh on three decades so buckle up because here we go down a deep deep pop intensive rabbit hole are you ready lads and ladies shooting roman candles up into the ink black nighttime sky out in the yonder reaches of discographityville we have gathered here today in a collective bid to achieve maximum pop perfection ergo here i sit both proud and humbled as i get to introduce to you a man named mark robinson that's me. How's it going? It's going pretty well. You are an unflappable guy. I knew I'd get no reaction from you at all. One question before we start. I'm putting up uh, a couple of interviews with Bob Nastanovich. During that episode, there's a reveal about Metal Machine Music. Are you okay yeah. with that being announced that you're working on it? I need to have like a conversation with you about what that's about because I know that the songs need to be 16 minutes and one second long. And that's it. I'm not sure what I'm not sure what the other direction is. Oh, that's it. So basically, it it could be anything. It kind of can. I mean, anything from inspired by the side, and then you take it wherever you want to go. So inspired by metal machine music. Okay, so inspired by the Lou Reed record. Yeah, 
And, and yeah. you know, I mean, this is the most batshit crazy thing that ever came out of the aftermath of that. But he actually, I believe, transcribed his feedback so that it was played by classical musicians. I think I never heard his redux of it. But yeah. you certainly don't need to be, you know, slavishly inspired by it. You could, you could and it could be generative. You could set things and walk out of the room and whatever you get is what you got. Whatever <laughs> you decide. Sure, so anything goes. Okay. Anything goes, really. Cool. Okay. So there's going to be four total or is it going to be like a big amount of it's contributions? Th it's four, but if other people then say, hey, I, I kind of want to do that, mm -hmm. then sure, there can be... Uh, nice. Sounds great. Um, Awesome. So July 21st, 1992, you're you're back with Unrest, putting out Isabel Bishop, which for me was just a confluence of timing, was again, a, a major thing for me. So the first two years of my schooling at Boston University, I was at Warren Towers for 700 Commonwealth Avenue. Then second year, I lived, don't judge me, I lived, uh, or judge me, go ahead. I lived in a fraternity house in Alston. Third year, I lived a 1412 Commonwealth Avenue in the very first apartment or place that I lived in by myself. So uh, basically what happened was I bought this single the moment I moved into my first apartment ever. So there's me sort of taking my first step as like an actual citizen of the of the world. And it's just me and the Isabel EP. So these are happening at like really formative moments in my life. And it's also the piece of music that I most associate with one of my most precious memories of my entire life. And by the way, do you know how I celebrated my freedom from not just my parents, but in life getting to the point where I remember my parents said, okay, bye, Dave, have a great year. And they left. And I was like, how do I celebrate being alone for the first time? How would you celebrate or how did you celebrate being alone for the first time? Do you remember? Oh, wow. When was I alone? <laughs> Maybe at the University of Wisconsin. What year was that? I, this is your first taste of freedom? I mean, the first place where I was living in an apartment by myself, not with other people. I don't know what I did, but what did you do? I took naked bong hits. And what is that? You're I naked took my clothes off. And, and, yeah, yeah. It was the best I could do it on short notice. Nice. Fun. Um, <laughs> but there was this EP at this incredible moment in my life. And that release, which I still have, is to me, not just based on the way that it crossed paths with me, but but the music on it is absolutely incredible. The A side, I didn't think that I could possibly like the record version any more than I, than I did. But the sort of prescient, soft trip hop confection that you make out of it, if I could possibly describe it like that, I don't know how you would even <laughs> describe it, but there's a gentle, it kind of reminds me of Autumn Sweater by Yola Tango. There's a okay. similar warmth to it with a terrific descending foreboding piano figure that gives it a sort of textured complexity. The version of Isabel on that is really amazing and love to know, as you and I have discussed before, is a cover, but yet mm -hmm. because Bridget is addressing you as Mark, which is in the original song, what a genius, you know, <laughs> unfurling of the red carpet to have a cover like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had never heard of the Marine Girls before, and you guys really make it your own. Not only is it my favorite cover you've ever done, I believe it's also one of your best songs, period. Wow. Love to know is great. And, it's always uh, bad when your best song is a cover. 
<laughs> no, no. I, you are, I have, you, I've had so many embarrassing moments when I've walked up to bands after the show and I'm like, that third song, it's, it's amazing. And then they were like, oh, that's a cover. And then I you, know what, you know what's there. really interesting about you, man, is you seem to have absolutely no need whatsoever for any external signifiers of success to show you that you're doing what you need to be doing. Yet every time I have complimented you on something, there's always a trace of you thinking I'm putting you down. I don't think you're putting me down. It's just when somebody says your best song is a cover song, it's just kind of funny. I mean, the, the warmth. <laughs> you guys bring a warmth to whatever you did at that time. And you didn't always court that kind of warmth after the band broke up. You're not necessarily looking to make people feel held and make people feel like everything's going to be okay. You know, that kind of thing. But at that time, you had a lot of that that was in your music. Mm. Maybe it was Bridget's presence. I'm not sure exactly what to ascribe it to, but that whole single had that in spades. Wharton Hockey does, Club. Does yeah. that have that? Does that have the warmth? Wharton Hockey Wharton Club, Hockey yeah. Club? Oh yeah, hell yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> One of many reference tones at that time. I don't. What What is your obsession with reference tones? I don't think I have an obsession with them. It's just it's it was something that got put on the uh, master tapes when you're in the studio. Tones on tail, and That's... it just seemed kind of cool to put it on the record. Is that what tones <laughs> on tail is? Yeah, the tones are on the tail of the tape. The end. Yeah. Okay, I didn't realize that that because I have in my notes here tones on tail, but I really wasn't even attributing that to this. Uh, Nation it's writer. Something that was written on the box. There were all kinds of different versions of this. The one I had was. Isabel and then Love to Know and Wharton Hockey Club on the B side. I have the vinyl version. This is five stars. I guess I'll give it a 3.9. 3.9. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's not, I don't think it's cohesive necessarily. I mean, there's a cover on it. I do like Nation Writer a lot. I think the version of Isabel is not as good as the album version. Oh, really? Um, so there you go. Okay. <laughs> yeah. It actually took a little while. Because my feelings toward the album version were just, this is indomitable, but I really grew to love this version. So first release after Goya is a compilation, Team Beat 100, which again, I own on vinyl. It came out March 18th, 1993. The only thing that we're going to actually look at here is the Unrest tune, International Nautical Miles. I fucking love this song, especially Phil's Phil's. This was recorded, I believe, in one weekend in August 92, which coincided with your first annual Teen Beat Barbecue, which I'm sure <laughs> already at that early stage, you were looking forward to not being held down by these uh, calendar anniversaries. What is it about calendar anniversaries that are a turnoff for you? I mean, I enjoyed the anniversaries that we had. Uh, we had the, the Teen Beat Banquets, and those were all... I don't know if they were anniversaries. It was just kind of a cool event that we held annually. What is the turnoff for? Well, it just seems like the 50th anniversary of something or the, the 20th anniversary, people are like, oh, you should do something for the 20th anniversary. But I just don't understand why. And I remember 4AD had a uh, festival and they had called the 13-year itch. And I thought that was pretty cool because it was 13 and it wasn't like a round number. I don't know why people are obsessed with round number anniversaries. That's all. People are stupid. That's why. <laughs> no. No, us as a species, we're dumb. Dieting myself just as much. You know, we feel like, you know, this is something I can wrap my head around, but life is completely incomprehensible. So it gives <laughs> us the illusion of some kind of control over how we view and experience time and space. And we have no control over that. 
we're helpless and hopeless. But I think it's a great song. And the concept of this thing, to have a seven inch, that's basically an album with 10 yeah. one minute songs. Yeah. You can't go wrong with that. Even if the songs suck, which they don't, it's, it's still an <laughs> incredible concept and an amazing keepsake. And I'm so psyched that I still own it on vinyl. I'm giving nice. this five stars. And we're just right. We're just rating the unrest song. Just the song. Yeah. Um, give it like a, f- um, 3.9 again too many 3.9s <laughs> this period in your career is very strongly marked by a strong compulsion to make songs that are 3.9 out of 5 uh, <laughs> <laughs> alright so then 4 months later one, two. sorry my math is wildly off 3 months later June 23rd there's the Kath Carroll EP you have the title track which we'll, let's talk about that more in depth when we get to the record and then the B side So So Sick which I'll cover on the single which is coming up next and Capizio mm-hmm. I wouldn't say it's on the same level as So Sick or Kath Carroll but yeah this is great I'll, I'm, I'm giving this five or actually you know what I'll give it I'll give it just a texture this this era a little bit more I'll give it four and three quarters this is for the entire single yeah okay I'm gonna give it like a I think it's three pretty good songs that we did so I'm gonna give it like a 4.6 ooh and I know that's just because I docked you a quarter of a star that you're jacking up the, the rating. Um, <laughs> so, so I'll be sure to do that more often now. I, mental note. What do you mean docking me? What did you do? You docked me a quarter well, of a star for what? Yeah, yeah. Everything's been five stars. Now you're getting cocky because before I had... <laughs> no, I'm just kind I'm of just kidding. being blatantly honest. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. Well, I mean, early on, I had to appease you with the two star ratings because I was like, dude, right, right around the corner, you're going to be sure. blushing and telling me to give you, please take it down. Yeah, notch. I do believe um, I was blushing. August 23rd, 1993, the So Sick single, which I have a free record okay. given to attendees of Unrest concerts. This was distributed for free on your mm-hmm. August 23rd to September 2nd tour with Blast Off Country Style. I'm sure this is not the first time that you've been asked this question. And man, does it, you know, for so many years, I thought it couldn't be the guy. How the hell did you wind up crossing paths with Simon LeBon? It was kind of an arbitrary thing. I think we had already booked studio time. I had this habit of booking studio time, being very um, independent since I was used to, you know, operating my own label. And so Caroline is like distributing our records and manufacturing them. Even then I was like, well, Kramer, they like set that up. And then I like independently set up the session with Wharton Tears. And they were kind of like, what are you doing? Like they wanted some input on who was going to record it and things like that. And then like as a joke, we were like, oh, well, we're, we're Simon LeBon will produce it and then apparently that got out and he was like into it so while he didn't really no i don't think so he didn't really produce the record but he like visited the studio so it was kind of another it was kind of similar to all of our other records except i guess maybe you know where we're kind of just like we're producing and the engineer is producing we're not going to really talk about a producer until we get to the air miami record like where someone's really calling the shots and like planning things out we're not quite at perfect teeth yet but what if anything in terms of an imprint did simon have or literally is he just lending his name to this thing yeah he was just there and we'd put it on and it was funny (laughs) 
I mean, how much time did he spend in the studio with you? I think couldn't have been more than a day. Did you hit it off or was it just like two ships passing in the night? Yeah, I think it was just funny that he was there more than anything. It had to have been a little bit mind blowing. I mean, this guy is a huge fucking star. And thank God, the music is actually really good. I don't know about you, but I'm unironically a fan of theirs. Oh, yeah, sure. Of course. You know, it ends for me at, you know, maybe 84, 85. I didn't really get into the post Seven of the Ragged Tiger material. Yeah, no, there's some great songs. I think even recently, I think even in the 90s, there was a good hit. Yeah, yeah. Maybe even Like Big that. World or something like that. Yeah, they, yeah, I mean, when you think about it, what seems mind-blowing initially is like, oh, yeah, that totally makes sense. These are two expert pop songwriters. But, you know, at that time, there was not the bleed over of the different strata of success levels. The closest approximation I can think of is Rick Ocasek doing Guided by Voices uh, Do the Collapse. But I think he was more right. hands-on, similar time period. Anyway, the So Sick single is fantastic. The song itself is incredible. We'll get to the record. And the edit of Vibe Out, even the unedited version, is tremendous. Yeah. Uh, I think the drone on the long version is crucial. So the edit yeah. doesn't make sense to me because the eight minute 54 second version is so good couldn't fit it on there though right unless you pull a todd rundgren circa wizard or true star and pack it on there to where it doesn't sound <laughs> right right i actually prefer vibe out to hydroplane as far as your drone material goes i love it five stars oh that single um yeah i'll give it a 4.5 okay you're digging this stuff. That's good for you. Um, digging this stuff. <laughs> it is. Yeah, you're digging this material. Uh, all right. So August 2nd, 1993, you performed in Newcastle. It was a 2009 release. The Pale Saints performed before you. It was a recording made directly off the soundboard. And at the end of the concert recording is an interview with you and Bridget, which was conducted May 15th, 1992. This is terrific. Again, I don't rate live stuff, but this would also get five stars for me. Were I forced at gunpoint to do something like that? <laughs> I would never do anything like that. <laughs> Not you, some <laughs> asshole in a, in a dark alley. <laughs> <laughs> are you are you a fan of this one? That live stuff, I can't even really remember it, to be honest. I can't remember it well enough to rate it or talk at length. I do remember playing the show. That's good enough for our purposes. Yeah. All right, so August 7th, <laughs> 1993, your next record comes out, Perfect Teeth. Action! And now, an important message from Don Bowles. Dan Kapelovitz is the only candidate for District Attorney of Los Angeles who has over a decade of experience successfully defending those falsely accused of crimes. Dan Kapelovitz is the only candidate running for Los Angeles District Attorney who is dedicated to ending mass incarceration. Dan Kapelovitz is the only candidate for Los Angeles District Attorney who co-created and produced the televised freakout public access show known as The Three Geniuses, which the LA Weekly dubbed the most intentionally psychedelic show on television. Dan Kapelovitz is the only candidate for Los Angeles District Attorney who is an accomplished photo theremonist. Dan Kapelovitz is the only candidate for Los Angeles District Attorney who now has a record label with punk rock legend and all-around weirdo Don Bowles. Dan Kapelovitz is the only candidate running for Los Angeles District Attorney who was not only the features editor at Hustler Magazine, but also Larry Flint's editorial point man for his First Amendment lawsuit against the military-industrial complex and the Pentagon. 
If you believe in liberty, justice, and the American way, vote for Dan Kapelovitz. Stick it to the man. Vote for Dan. Dan Kapelovitz. I'm Dan Kapelovitz, and I approve this message. To the day now, this is the last studio album that you have released, and we just passed the 30th anniversary of this thing. So just as a whole, I'm curious what you think about this record, because there's a lot in here that we could talk about conceptually, Hmm. as far Mm -hmm. as, you know, if we want to talk about the... You know, we were joking around about you being Mark Icarus Robinson, but, you know, this is the point, arguably, just just from a guy who's sitting in a chair listening to your music or getting up and walking around the room and doing the exact same thing, is this is a guy who's got tendencies toward noise and experimentation, who it seems externally has decided to strip that away to maybe have the audience that was starting to come to you after 10 years of kicking around to help seal the deal a little bit more maybe maybe not i don't know but i'll I'll be asking you momentarily but Mm -hmm. the interesting one two punch is this is in my mind what you may be going through as as an artist is all right let's remove all the potential blocks to people coming on board and being fans of ours and then at the same time this is it this is the breaking point for the band there's a lot of similarities that I see between you and Pulp, a band who's been around forever. And then finally, you know, there's people rushing to find out about you and you're and you're over before you kind of started, which is, you know, a very intriguing style of build. There's not a lot of groups that I can point to and say, yeah, they had a similar type of ascendancy. So I don't know if you remember that time accurately as far as your interior landscape. That had to have been a heady time for you to be making the kinds of decisions as a band leader that you did. But in a general sense, how do you feel about the record looking back 30 years? I like it. I don't I don't like it as much. I mean, it's going back to that whole thing that I keep talking about is the song selection. So I think with this one, we recorded like 22 songs or 23 songs and only 11 of them are on the record. And I don't know if we consciously, I guess we did consciously because we had been playing so much as a band because it was you know phil and i for a little while and then bridget came on and we did imperial but there's a few songs that are all of us there's a lot of songs that are just me and phil and then there was a lot of songs that were just me and then we had toured a lot for i guess the next year and a half before we recorded perfect teeth and so this is definitely more of like a band record and then in terms of like i don't think there was any conscious effort of let's expand our audience by getting rid of um a firecracker style song but firecracker didn't come out of us as a band although we did do a um, I snuck that food and drink synthesizer song on right, there. Right, right. And even that's kind of fun because it's not just me. All three of us are in there. And even this awesome dude, Brent, who was the assistant engineer, was on it. I think it could have been a better record with Vibe Out on there. I think the reason that we didn't put it on there was because it was so long. But I would love mm-hmm. to like go back and like remove two songs and put Vibe Out on there. Which songs? I think six layer cake has never been like my favorite. I think it was a it was a lot. It was, for a long time. It was called Christmas Cookie, and it was an instrumental, mm-hmm. and we played it live all the time. And then once I like added lyrics to it, I don't know. I just wasn't loving the lyrics and the singing. And that's interesting because you know the second side always seemed to me like it wasn't as good as the first side. But I always loved six layer cake. To me, it was the stuff around six layer cake. With all due respect to Phil, I don't. I just don't believe that West Coast Love Affair belongs on the record and stylized ampersand and breather i felt like you had other stuff that could have trumped that material i love this record that's just a quibble go ahead yeah i would take breather off too i think 
I liked it conceptually. Uh, I like the idea. It's like, Phil, you just do a drum solo for five minutes, and then we're just going to play around you. So I don't want to know quite yet. I don't want to talk about the breakup of the band yet. But I do want to ask if at that time, the interpersonal relationships between you, Phil, and Bridget were coming to a head if you weren't getting along as well. I never knew why you broke up, unless it was just mm-hmm. a general sense of restlessness. Um, I think we were totally getting along fine. Yeah. Okay. It looks um, like I'm going to have to dig with it. a lot more. Well, you said you wanted to talk about that later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Let's, talk, let's talk about it. Okay. All right. So let's talk about the music. Angel, I'll Walk You Home. Always loved that song so much. Might take that and, one off too. Really? <laughs> really? I just feel like my vocal performance is not great. I don't know. It could be better. I really like that. Bridget's great. Yeah, she is. So Bridget, she plays such an interesting role in the history of the band because she wasn't in it for most of its existence. And then she joins the band. What's the first recording with her on it? It was the um, Catch Pellet single, Team okay. 28 okay. She was on the Real Enemy song. So then she joins the band and the character of the band totally changes to me. Anyway, you may feel differently, Mm -hmm. but that very much turns into a sort of different band, different feel, different priorities. And it really brings a sense of cohesion to the band as well, which is not necessarily something, correct me if I'm wrong, that you were even interested in achieving because it seems like some of the wonderful points of the band in general is that there was a desire to stay away from cohesion, but she brought it whether or not on purpose. And then all of a sudden it was over, but there's a definite cohesion to this record, potentially way more so than you'd ever envisioned for not just in rest but any of your projects because you're a Mm -hmm. guy whose tastes are all over the map and this Mm -hmm. is an album that does one thing and does it very well hmm is it just one but no i agree with you i think just going back to the amount of touring we were doing and becoming a band really is reflected on here you know just playing that much with everyone And we did a lot of improvising and, you know, it was a great band to be in for that as well. It's amazing. A guy whose heart is all over the map with regard to music taste and with regard to your own band. You're so restless that you've been in one marriage for your whole life. It's great that you were able to keep it segregated in music because you're not at all that I can tell anyway, a commitment phobe in your life. But yet, when it comes to bands, your desires and your needs and what gets you off with music is so varied that it's asking a lot to pin you down in one spot, right? Or am I getting this totally wrong? I'm not sure what you mean. The marriage, the one long marriage, is that unrest or what do you mean? No, no, your marriage. Oh. Most people who have a who have a problem staying put in one place, it carries over in all areas of their lives. I mean, I stuck with unrest for a long time and that name and Phil. So I'm not sure what, what you're getting at. Sorry. So what I mean is this, and hats off to you, this is not in any way, shape or form any kind of a critique. This is something to learn from, or maybe I'm just seeing it incorrectly, is that for years and years, you're prolifically creating a foundation, a bedrock of all this music, and the rest of the world catches up, you know, in the early 90s, and, you know, there's a huge drum roll as far as, you know, people catching on to what you're doing and more and more fans. And just at the point at which maybe it wasn't as across the board as being able to write your own ticket or anything, but you had people kind of hanging on what you were going to do next. And hmm. you could have done anything. You could have totally sold out. You could have done what everyone was hoping for or expecting. And, you know, within a couple years, you did a record with all locked grooves in 
between the songs. <laughs> you know, this is a person who, even if we weren't on the phone, I'd be like, that is just incredible. And that guy obviously knows the kind of life he wants to live. And so anything that happens along the way isn't going to knock him off track because that's what he knows what he wants. If we look at the whole discography or disco graffiti, if you will. Yeah, I'm just doing what I want the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't think yeah. Perfect Teeth, it's like this big drum roll, but I don't know, was it? Like this record was released on Reprise Warner Brothers, the WIA distribution system. So it was like a major label record in mm -hmm. I think most of the world. I don't think it made a dent on the spreadsheets of those companies. There was no giant success coming or anything like that. I'm saying you could have inorganically pushed it in that direction. You could okay. have become, I think, certainly, you could have become uber career-minded at that point. You know, Yeah, we and never then, were. <laughs> yeah, and it's amazing that you kept your music purely intentioned. Okay, so Angel, I'll walk you home. You have basically taken the template of the normal unrest sound and brought it down to a, a crawl and pulled out the backbeat. It's a sad, gorgeous, unexpectedly upfront with, to me anyway, I remember the first time playing it with its on-the-sleeve emotional yearning and the super beach boys sized bada 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 okay always loved it as an opener it was ballsy sure. you could have easily put kath carroll first right but something you said no i wanted to crawl out of the gate right <laughs> which is yeah, really unexpected. cool yeah, yeah right yeah hi i'm dave gebro i threw my career as a licensed hearing instrument specialist in the trash sold my house and moved to the east coast with my wife and four-year old son in order to focus on making the ultimate podcast for music obsessives thrive. Now I need your help. Although Discograffiti is rated in the top 2% of all podcasts globally, the economics of this thing are tricky. Becoming a member of Discograffiti's Patreon gives you access to over 100 more exclusive episodes. And moving forward now every Sunday for only $5 a month as a private first class, you get our new weekly show by and for Discograffiti's Patreon family, the Discograffiti Soldiers of Sound podcast. It'll be hosted by Rudy Fishman, and given his sociopathic tendencies, I'm sure it'll have a lunatic's take over the asylum edge to it. If all you want to do is show some love, there's now finally a $1 tier. Don't miss out. Become a recruit and get your personalized backstage pass for a buck. And for the cheapskates, homeless people, and all the bums sponging off mom and dad, don't care, just join. It's now completely free to join as a basic member, and it'll be the only place you'll be able to get our upcoming Lou Barlow, Corey Hansen, Mark Robinson comp, Metal Machine Muzak, as well as the triple album rock opera Elf Harmony I created with Joe Kennedy as the mentally regarded, and the ability to purchase one-off Patreon episodes. That's it. Back to the show. Kath Carroll is amazing. It always did kind of seem like that was a chip off of Suki's block. Suki, Cherry Cherry, and Kath Carroll, they seem like a triumvirate to me. Okay. Definitely a total classic. I love the let's go. I love those little moments that you have <laughs> when you're talking to the band. Reed McFarland, who's the admin of the Team Beat Forever group, asks or says, I'd love to know more about where and why Mark built the lyrics for Perfect Teeth on Kath Carroll's England Made Me, like the lyric Angel I'll Walk You Home, and generally mm -hmm. more about his obsession and relationship with her, especially since it's so fruitful. I think, as we mentioned with Grenadine and probably earlier, I would just kind of always be borrowing interesting lines from 
certain people. I think the Kath Carroll thing almost came out of more of the uh, Winona Ryder song in terms of like, let's make a celebrity song. But I thought this one was funny because no one, at least in the United States, had ever heard of Kath Carroll. Yeah. So I thought it was funny to make like a tribute song to someone that no one had ever known or like didn't know very well in the United States anyway. So I did use, that's one of the lyrics from her songs is Angel I'll Walk You Home from her album, I think that came out in 91 on Factory Records. One of the records that helped collapse Factory Records, apparently. And there's another song from this session called Where Are All Those Puerto Rican Boys, which is yeah. another one of her lines. Oh, is that her? Okay. So yeah, there's all sorts of stuff. There was a line in Isabel that I stole from this band Vomit Launch from one of their songs. And I always forget that that happened. And then when I ever talk to Larry from Vomit Launch, he always reminds me. What line is that? <laughs> admiration is still swelling. They had a song called Swelling Admiration. Nice. And I, that was my play on that. Yeah. That's but awesome. it fit into the song perfectly too. So Sick is an amazing song. What I love about that one is there's a melancholic streak that flits through that song. It's, it's always there, but yet it's, again, that distillation of absolute perfect pop. It could be my favorite song on the record, somehow mm. very wistful and poppy at the same time and you get that droney breakdown in the middle and so i feel like it's kind of you able to get all the various parts of the unrest sound jammed into one sort of greatest hits medley of stylings yeah i mean i can remember because there's certain chords you're comparing uh kath carroll to suki and i think there is like some certain chords that i kind of came up with or created at least for myself and i think those do share chords and then with this one i do remember like i think there's a song or two on like malcolm x park so there's certain like you know octave chords that i'm playing on this one but yeah no it was a, it was a lot of fun to play we played that live a lot it's probably one of my favorites on the record too i think i actually prefer the so so sick though that could have been cool to be on the album yeah yeah that's is that the one with the so sick <laughs> yeah well that that was from the box set so okay. when we did the box set we had this computer read all the titles before okay. the song yeah <laughs> <laughs> Kath Carroll. Yeah. <laughs> like a speaking spell. Exactly. So Light Command, another pop classic, all in a row, this time with Bridget on the mic. I love her dissonant harmonies in the chorus mm -hmm. and the incredibly beat happening-esque thing that happens mm. when she, whenever she helms a tune. There's mm. a really incredible warm sort of arts and craftsy thing that happens that is tremendously inspiring. It always brings it for yeah. me in that direction, no matter what else is going on around her also what a weird despondent lengthy close to the song i mm. never really remembered that it kind of drifts to the left into the ether as it as it finishes <laughs> now do you remember the impetus behind two minutes of pop genius crashing headlong into an unnerving two minute creep out of a coda i mean i think it's similar to as we discussed with imperial the coda had been born with unrest the imperial has a coda I do believe you're blushing. You know, even June kind of has has one, maybe. Well, um, June's like a, you're a day in the life. It's okay, kind of like yeah. the two right, jam right, into right. one. Yeah. So I think we were just having fun with that, using our improvising skills and kind of jamming at the end of songs. Yeah, yeah. So, But not just jamming, yeah. creating a whole new section. Yeah, 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 sure. And then food and drink synthesizer, it's worthy to talk about this because it doesn't feel like, and never did feel like a standalone like Firecracker or Champion Nines or Sugar Shack. 
This feels like you're, in a sense, punching the clock on desires that you've backseated. So this feels like an interstitial and not a main feature, mm -hmm. like doesn't feel like its own song. If I am left with a vibe from this, it's this stuff's still really important to us. We're just not really giving it much screen time. Yeah, I mean, again, we're just kind of doing interesting stuff. I mean, with stuff that's interesting to us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Does Is it like Champion Nines? I don't know. Maybe it's more like Firecracker. I just mean a standalone. I don't mean comparing it yeah. musically. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, I mean, there's not as much stuff as I like that on this record. I mean, there could have been, maybe. Maybe Side 2 could have been like all Hydroplane. <laughs> yeah, that would have right? been pretty cool. Yeah. And I, we're still I, doing like silly stuff like the Capizio Bowler could have been on like Malcolm X Park or something like that. Tell me about Simon LeBon's footwear. I can't remember. Well, that's what the song's inspired by, right? I had these bowling shoes that were made by Capizio, which is the dance shoe company. Soon it is going to rain. I've always loved this. It's an epic ballad over seven minutes long, and it always felt like an ending to me. It's weird. You know, oddly, I always felt like the record ended with Soon It Is Going to Rain, like it was an EP that had some bonus songs on the second side. Um, <laughs> I could sense as a fan back then that something was changing by the time I flipped the tape. It's a bizarre first side because it starts and ends pretty mopily for a band that had been kicking around without a lot of people, or certainly not nearly as many people as currently were listening to you. And you sound bummed. I don't know if you were, hmm. but I, I have found my way back home. I am on my way back home. You know, if I wanted to read into that, it could be like, you guys have lost your way because people are actually paying attention. No, of course I got it wrong. No, I mean has absolutely nothing. I never wrote a song about the band or God about the band's it. arc or anything like that. <laughs> How was that supposed to help me today? <laughs> right. And I think in terms of like tone, if I ever wrote a song with kind of black keys, if you will, like dark, you know, darker sounds, it just kind of became more serious. And if I wrote a song with, you know, more white keys or more poppy sounding, it, the lyrics kind of reflect that in general, I think. That's my guess. You don't struggle with depression at all, do you? Uh, no, I don't think so. Reason I ask is I would ask you, so what really was going on for you back then? But I think it was just probably whatever was going on for you in 92 or 91. You were just making music, playing songs. Yeah. Kind of, yeah. yeah. It's a great album side. I mean, I feel like side one tells a more cohesive tale than sides one and two together. Mm -hmm. And then side two, Make Out Club, I've always loved. By the way, was there ever a sequencing attempt that ended the record with Soon It Is Going to Rain? It was, some, it was somewhat deliberate to put it at the end of side one, because although it could have been at the end of side two, I suppose, but we it was deliberate to let the tape run out, because I think we had done that on Custom Carnal, Black Exploitation. I think it, it, mm -hmm. I think it is the closing track, Black Power Dynamo. As we were playing the song, the tape ran out, I think, but it sounded so cool. At some point, we recorded something and the tape had run out, and it sounded really cool the way it sounds like somebody's like choking on the, <laughs> the machine is like choking or something, and it's kind of making these cool noises. So we just kept playing that song until the tape ran out kind of like uh i want you she's so heavy the way that ends what is your outlook on breather xoxo i think the lyrics could have been better it could have been maybe it would have been a better instrumental not into the vocals that much but i love like phil's drumming and i think it sounds cool 
Yeah, Phil's on fire on this record. Phil's really, really mm -hmm. good. This one and West Coast Love Affair, I just, I never really connected with these two in a row. And the album kind of, for me, it's, it really slows down on the second side, which I think is fair to say, because I've given the last hundred releases a year's five stars. So um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Phil's sensibility seems like a separate and different sensibility than yours in a way that like, for example, maybe it's Reno. It sounds like if you called that unrest, it would be fair enough even though it's different but i feel like phil's stuff had a separate i'm not even talking about quality wise just different and yeah. then we, we talked about six layer cake and stylized ampersand is i feel a, a really off-putting closer uh, i don't dislike <laughs> i don't dislike the song but um, uh -huh. it just seems like a totally random choice to end the record mm-hmm um, I don't know. I, I'm not sure how we sequenced it. I think it was kind of like, yeah, I think usually what you did was these are the best songs and these are the ones we're putting on the record and we're just going to figure out how to arrange them. Vive Out was one of the best, but it didn't fit on there. Did we do as a band? I believe so. Yeah, probably. So I mean, I was always kind of strong arming people probably a little bit or I had probably had a, more of a voice in the room, but I think we did it as a group. I think that's pretty fair for you to have a loud voice. Just in general with this record, I'm starting to see around this time the visual designer come out in an auditory way. So mm -hmm. I'm starting to hear a clean, straight line simplicity. I, I'm not using the word simplicity in a pejorative sense, but there's a cleanliness to it that at the time I think caught me a little bit off guard because it is, although similar to, it is different enough from Imperial that as a fan, you're thinking he's taking a, a left turn here. There's a clarification of intent, but also a change. You never seem to me to be so transparent and unarmed as unprotected by art and made vulnerable by dropping all pretense to be an amalgamation of influence and cool. You know, it wasn't just about, I like all this kind of stuff, so I'll just hmm. put it together. Was there anything different that was going on behind the scenes during this time as far as vibe in the band? You know, as all the success, even if you want to put the word success in quotation marks, however you hmm. feel about what level you'd gotten to, was there anything in terms of how that hit the band and how Phil and Bridget were dealing with that that made the vibe different in Unrest? The difference is that we were touring a lot. We were playing more shows than we had ever played. I don't really know like what if there was anything that comes across in the album that was going on. Just a lot of touring and record label things and stuff like that. <laughs> What are you going to give this slab of vinyl? I don't know. You've been you've been giving your rating before mine on every single one. I got to keep you on your toes. I'll give it. I'll give it four and a quarter. Uh, four point three. Four point three. All right, we're pretty much on the same page here. I mean, basically, I think the first side is killer. I think the second side. There's five songs. I love two of them, and the other three I'm kind of on the fence about. I would just say as a general thing, I love the record, but I'm definitely more of an imperial guy. I feel like it gave a much stronger picture of all the many moods of unrest versus just, you know, mm -hmm. the one, that one thing that you do. Yeah. Um, do you have a preference between the two? Well, what was my rating on imperial? Uh, I, I don't remember. Uh, let me see. <laughs> I thought you were writing down. I did, I did but, uh, but then I don't go back and memorize them before we get on the phone. <laughs> <laughs> um, let me see. 4.7. 
Okay. So that one's, I, I guess I prefer that one then. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I love how once you give me your number, it enters the annals and that is just how you feel about it now. Um, all right, and no, that's we don't fair. need to talk. Okay. I'll just give you ratings and then we don't even have to have a conversation. Perfect. Uh, all right. Okay. So b- before we move on, this is the last full album by Unrest. It's been 30 years. Yeah, 30 years. Oh, you mean since then? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think it meant 30 years since the band started at that point. No, no. But it probably felt like it at that time. If you were a fan of Mark Robinson, <laughs> what era would you be listening to the most? Uh, I don't know. What band would be the most appealing to you? What band? I thought we were just yeah. talking about Unrest. Yeah, but I'm just curious, with all the music that you've done, being the music fan that you are, and let's say that it wasn't you who made all this music, you know, what era would you, would be of most appeal and interest to you? What era of unrest, not what band? No, of Mark that, Robinson, period. What musical project would I most be interested in? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's a project that's continuing on right now, so I would say the Fang Wizard Party Milk project. Since I'm still doing that, maybe I'm thinking it's better than it is. <laughs> no, it's pretty fucking great. And your collaborator is desperately wanting for you to take a second take on some of these things. <laughs> I don't necessarily think he's think so? right. Well, he said mean? it. Well, he Did says he? it. Yeah, he says, I, I wish one of these days that I could do a second take. Okay. Where, where does he say that? On your website. Okay. Yeah. Oh, hi, Dave again. I got to tell you about the next tier. As a lieutenant, you get an ad-free, substantially elongated director's cut of every episode. And you'll be getting the shows an entire week early from now on. And now back to our expertly crafted program. All right. Now we're at Lollapalooza, summer 93. We kind of dealt with that, talked about it. So Mm -hmm. I don't think there's much of a need to revisit there's nothing to rate how would you rate the experience were you treated well oh yeah it was great free food very good sound system (laughs) were were there people around that time who were acting starstruck towards you did you notice Uh, that people were starting to treat you differently or no i mean certainly not the people that were running the festival yeah i mean sometimes kids would be you know occasionally some kid would really be into your album and maybe seem somewhat nervous when they bought a t-shirt from you i don't know (laughs) Do you remember the most nervous or the most awestruck somebody was during that time? No. No? Did that stuff, was that a put off for you? Did that put you off? Was it weird? It was weird. I don't think it was a put off. I mean, for so many years to be part of this band, then all of a sudden, you know, nothing seemingly has changed in your world, but, you know, people are tripping over their words. Yeah, I don't know if all that was happening, but yeah. <laughs> really? I mean, there had to have been fans who were talking. I'm like probably, that. yeah. I don't know. There had to have been. All right. So after the Don't Forget the Halo release, mm-hmm. there is the final unrest release, which, to be honest with you, I didn't know it was even something that existed before. Before we did this show. I never knew about it, but Animal Park, the seven inch, which came out on February 23rd, 1994, features three songs. Two of them are unique to this. One's a remix. You have Afternoon Train, which obviously is the link to Air Miami because that's on Me, Me, Me. And then Hey, Hey, Halifax. And on the flip, a remix of Light Command, which sounds exactly the same to me. I don't know if, you know, maybe a little sonically brighter, but I can't really tell Mm -hmm. much of a difference. Does it say remix? Yeah, it does. I don't know what the difference is. I haven't listened to it in a while. Hey Hey Halifax is a outtake from the Perfect Teeth sessions. Perhaps one that could have been the firecracker of Perfect Teeth had we decided to include it. 
Agreed. Yeah. It's great. It's a really beautiful, intensive strummer, instrumental, like you said. And then Afternoon Train. Now tell me, Air Miami was a thing at this point, right? I mean, were you... No. It wasn't. Okay. This is not so, a song. I mean, it's a Bridget song. Very interesting, this version, as compared to the Air Miami one. It's really spare and a really pretty version that ultimately sounds more like an Air Miami demo than it does mm -hmm. a fleshed out unrest song, which by the way, nothing wrong with that. I really like this single. But in my desperation to read into everything you've ever done for the purposes of this podcast as much as i love it because i give this single four and two-thirds stars there's a general feeling of despondency dispiritedness really good but there's a feeling of this being afterthoughty probably hmm. more in retrospect looking back at the end of the band did you know that this is going to be the last release no okay so the end of the band came quickly and suddenly then, I would imagine, if you didn't know this was it. Yeah, I can't remember, when did, when, what date is this? This is February 23rd, 94 is when it comes out. Okay. Yeah, I think we were on tour and we had just been touring so much and we just kind of, you know, it's hard to s stay in the van full of the same people for the long time. And I think at the same time I was thinking Unrest has been around for essentially 12 years at that point. And it kind of sound, it seems like we were like the Rolling Stones and so I should do something different. <laughs> All right. So, so wasn't really what, do you, much to it. what do you give this Lab OX? It's hard because Light Command is, you know, obviously already been released. So that's like kind of negative points, I think. I mean, the cover gets like a 10 on the scale of zero to five. I'll give it like a 4.2. I mean, I love the Afternoon Train song. That's awesome. It really is. I love Hey Hey Halifax too. So all this stuff, you know, I told you about my theory with regard to you guys being like the American version of pulp, such a long climb to success and then a quick breakup. So hmm. is it really you just deciding, hey, we've been doing this for a while. Let's try something different. Is it really as simple as that? You woke up one day, let's try something different. I think so pretty much. Yeah. I mean, in retrospect, maybe not a great decision because, you know, I think that was our job at that point. <laughs> yeah, kind of. But, you know, well, I mean, from a financial aspect is what I'm saying. Right. But you told me, and by the way, if this is not an area you want to visit, we can keep this out with regard to how much you were making at that time. Yeah, we is paid a, ourselves is, like $1,000 a month. Yeah, which is wild. But Bridget and Phil, how did they feel about it? Did you find out later that they felt differently than, than how they were letting you on? And then most importantly, you broke up the band, but then it was you and Bridget. Uh -huh. Did Phil not want to play music anymore? Was it something about Phil where you just didn't want to play with Phil anymore? I don't really remember exactly, but it was kind of just like, we need to get off this train and do something else. <laughs> get off you know i don't know what it was it, i don't think it was about phil necessarily i think phil had been substitute teaching before we kind of became full-time band people that's what he started doing after as well substitute teaching or teaching in general well i think it was maybe substitute teaching before the band and then full-time teaching after that was his heart in teaching or was his heart in music at that time poof i don't know <laughs> Is, is, are you still you really the hardest close? questions? So many hard questions. No, this is a huge turning point in your life and your career. <laughs> Frankly, one of the things that makes you an endlessly interesting musician is the decisions you made over the course of 94 to 96. Okay. From an external point of view, <laughs> as a fan, uh -huh. seeing the kinds of decisions you were making were very heartening and very inspiring to me. Cool.
But the reasons behind them, you know, I have zero clue as, and I don't know if you know, maybe you right. were just maybe doing I what don't. felt right. Do you? <laughs> right. I don't think I know. I think it was just like, oh, oh, there was also this weird culture in DC of breaking bands up. Bands would be together for like a year or two and then just break up. And we had some reason in my head thought that we were kind of like dinosaurs in that way. Which is amazing because you know, the rest of the universe thought you were a brand new band. Well, sure. Right. So that was a layer of weirdness on top of everything else is that no yeah. one was going through what you were going through. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it was probably just like, let's try something different. It's kind of fun to do new things and yeah. new band names, etc. Unrest also kind of sounded like a hardcore band. <laughs> yeah, name. yeah, yeah, it does. Which is kind of why it was chosen, to be honest. Well, it was at least appropriate for custom carnal exploitation. In terms of... In terms of the band name being an appropriate match for what you were producing. Because it's so, like, all over the place? No. No, because that's probably your most punk-adjacent the record hardest. as a whole. Yeah. Is it punk? I, think, I feel like it's more like metal or something like that. Yeah, yeah. It's, just, it's, just, <laughs> it's less pop-minded and a lot more Yeah, harder. yeah, yeah. Look, in my wrap-up, I kind of mentioned this, but I don't think we've actually gone here yet. I'm okay. going to suggest here that you were one of the most ambitious people I've ever spoken with, while also being one of the most ambition-averse people I've come across. Hmm. Interesting dichotomy. Okay. Yeah, I think there's definitely something to that. I don't know about the most ambitious, but uh, in terms of just wanting to do what I do and not really caring where that takes me. I don't know any 16-year-olds at all who start their own record label and who go into school and that's your market for, yeah. you know, nobody. <laughs> there's nobody that I know. Well, sure, you yeah. can say music's important to me. I want to do it the rest of my life. But that's the yeah. opposite of an armchair dreamer. Yeah, true. But it's also like a terrible business plan. And like, <laughs> if I was really serious about, because I mean, mostly it was it was done that way because I had no idea what I was doing. That's a lot of what this is too. I just, I have no idea what I'm doing. If I really wanted to start a record label, maybe I would have gotten some money together somehow and like actually put out records. <laughs> I mean, I did do that eventually. But you but, did. I mean, you got yeah. money from all your friends, right? Yeah. And they put like three, four bucks in. and Yes. I mean, but that totaled like $25 or something. But yeah. Yeah, but still. <laughs> I mean, because I don't know about you, but when I was in my teens, I just felt like whatever I was thinking and doing that everyone felt that way. You know, the the ego of a of a teenager. And then you look back and you're like, Oh, shit. Yeah, no, that was just me. And so you have all these bands, the Thirsty Boys, Eggs, all these other bands who kind of started with you. And you probably were thinking like, just as this is the only one thing I want to do with my life, I'm sure this is the only thing that these people want to do, too. And it turns out that in all likelihood, no, that was not the case because your ambition was a comet that dragged everyone along with it because without Teen Beat, would Eggs have gone on to produce a shit ton of records or, you know, mm -hmm. all these other bands? It's hard to say. Really. We'll never know. That's down to your ambition, I would say. I would say that that has a yeah. lot to do with it. I guess Right. I don't know if that's the, I don't know if that's the right word, but maybe that's a, yeah. My, um, obsession, my... You're a galvanizer. Uh, you're a galvanizer. Okay. Yeah. Right. So your excitement for... Excitement. That's it. It's my excitement. Yeah. I right. get by, in fact, that's what I often say is I get by on enthusiasm. Right. I think that's what it is. Like, I don't know what I'm doing, but I get by on enthusiasm in pretty much everything I do. Yeah. <laughs> and here you are. You haven't perished yet. And your CV is like bursting at the seams with stuff. Um, <laughs> all right. So, hello, Air Miami. 
So when you become a major, you get yet another show on Wednesday. Either Discography's The Top Ten, our Buried Treasure show, Rock Cousteau, our Slag Off show, Queasy Listening, or exclusive limited series like The Private Press with Paul Major. And if you've got no financial worries to speak of, keep in mind that some of the higher Patreon tiers allow you to actually advertise on the show, choose the bands we cover, or even some of the guests we get. For the price of a cup of coffee a week, you can ensure my family's fed, build a music library that'll be the envy of your block, and connect to a thriving community of music maniacs all at the same time. Don't risk feeling badly about yourself by not giving. Patreon.com slash Discograffiti. Once again, that's Patreon.com slash Discograffiti. So this is your first really new act of a shit ton of endless amounts of bands that we're going to start seeing the light of day now. So after Unrest, Bridget and yourself formed this power pop quartet with Mike Fellows from Rites of Spring and Lauren Felcher from Mascot. The band was essentially just me and Bridget. And I think the idea was to be very collaborative and she would maybe write like half the songs. I would write half the songs. And I think I encouraged her to play the guitar and not the bass, which I don't know if she wanted to do in retrospect. So that's interesting. You guys come out with a seven inch, the last seven inch for unrest. You have no idea from what you're telling me that you were planning on breaking up the band or having another band in the near future. Within a right. few weeks, you're getting together without Phil to yeah. do this. Do you remember Bridget being like, why are we doing this? Or do you remember Phil saying, dude, I thought we were fucking friends? I mean, we had already broken the band up. So in February... There was, was there was no overlap between the two bands. Okay. Were they upset that the band was broken up? I don't know. We should also mention, I have a sketch somewhere of a fifth unrest album cover design with an airplane and a font that's made up of with three lines for each word, kind of like the unrest logo. And the name of the album was, was going to be Air Jamaica. Interesting. So is this just a rough conceptual sketch of what was to come or was it actually, were there songs that were intended for it that wound up differing? I'm pretty sure Airplane Rider was written in the fall of 93. Every album is a reaction to the previous album in a way. So Imperial is kind of a reaction to Custom Carnal and maybe Perfect Teeth is a reaction to Imperial. And the next one was going to be, let's shorten these songs up. <laughs> you know, these songs are kind of going on. Let's we're, we're going to get rid of those codas and we're just going to be very snappy and efficient. Yeah. So that was I think it was originally intended to be like an air, an unrest record. Okay. In my head. Yeah. More than anything else. I don't think we ever played those songs. I love the reactive tendency from Perfect Teeth to Me 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 because fuck is that record tight. It's so tight. I like Soon It Is Going to Rain and I like all the sprawling stuff on perfect teeth but your reactive knee jerk was right on target i think it just produced something really amazing then we have the debut air miami release november 8th 1994 Mm -hmm. which was a very fucked up time in my life i did not know about this seven inch when it came out airplane rider with stop sign on the flip there's a less mechanized feel to this air miami Mm -hmm. seems very concerned with being spot on in the pocket and this Mm -hmm. has an unrest style looseness to it and it feels like a swap like the last unrest song was an air miami song just as the first released air miami song sounds like a classic unrest track Mm -hmm. Um, it kind of was an unrest song i mean we didn't play it but it was written 
one in there it's a great single man stop sign more drum machine forward so a little bit more mechanized but still lower budget so it's again or at least what it sounds like lower budget mm-hmm. so it's again slightly more what i would expect from a homemade style 1991 era unrest record i believe that this release is a total masterpiece i love it it's a hard five yeah i like it uh 4.5 4.5 Maybe lower. Okay. Maybe 4.4. No, that's good. 4.4 and a half? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Then March 21st, 1995, you by yourself hopped on to the Stephen Merritt project, the, the Sixths, Wasps Nests, uh-huh. and did Puerto Rico Way. Again, N slash A, because it's not your song. And then I rated it. <laughs> but it, you know what it reminds me of? is the slew of endless Woody Allen movies where hmm. the star is quite obviously doing an impression of Woody Allen. Oh, uh, yeah, like yeah, J- yeah, sure. Jesse yeah. Eisenberg and, you know. Yeah, it's interesting you say that. You do a great Stephen Merritt. I'll give this song four and a third. Am I impersonating him that much? It feels like you're going for a Stephen Merritt really? impression. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Because I was told before I went in the studio that it had to be sung a very particular way and that I couldn't like change it in any way. Which seems like it would probably be appealing to you because he sings with a croon, which kicked Hmm. open your Sammy obsession, right? Hmm. There's There's a little bit of what you do with Sammy in this song. Interesting. So I did get a little Sammy through, even though I'm impersonating Stephen Merritt. Okay. Yeah. That had to have been the draw of this particular project, right? Okay. I don't think I was intentionally trying to sound like Stephen Merritt, but maybe with that instruction, do not change anything and listening to his vocal first influenced how I, how I did it. Yeah. So Metal Machine Muzak will be the second time you appear on a record with Lou Barlow. Oh, is he, he's on that too. Okay. Nice. What do you give this? I don't know. I thought you said you weren't rating it. Four and a third. I mean, the, his original song, I'd give it a five. Um, 3.8. Okay, September 12th, 1995, Air Miami's Rosetta Stone is thrown down, and that thud is heard around the world, that noise, that thud. <laughs> You're ruffling your brow. <laughs> What's the thud? Is this me, me, me? The th- yeah, the thud of your wares okay. as an Air Miami noisemaker. I love the energy on Air Miami. I remember at the time being relieved that you guys were picking up the BPMs after Perfect Teeth. As much as I loved that one, my life was a pretty heady place to be at the time, and I personally needed a lift after everything I'd gone through, so I appreciate you picking up the pace specifically for me. So for me, this record felt like an elegy to a completed time. I think mainly because I had moved on in my own life left college, all this shit had happened to me. It felt like a valedictory run by a band that I'd had an extremely close relationship with for years. So there's a sadness to this one, just for me personally, that's Mm. really beautifully captured. You know, definitely Beachy is the one for me that really brings me back to this record. After Neely punched me in the balls when I first heard it, very quickly, definitely Beachy became my favorite and remains so to this day. I love this record. Just in a general sense looking back on that project did it achieve everything that you wanted it to because you really have just this one thing this one artifact to look back on with this band yeah i mean if that's all we have and that's that is all we have <laughs> then Kinda i'm pretty is, happy right? with what with what we did yeah definitely and as a 
designer, I feel like you really came forward. Do you call yourself a visual designer or is there a different wording that you use? I do say that because when you say designer, you're like, what, what does that mean? could mean anything. I should also note that I did not design Perfect Teeth. Chris Big did that and he did an amazing job with that one. I mean, it's pretty obvious. That the, it's pretty obvious that the guy who designed uh, Custom Carnal Blaxploitation did not design Perfect Teeth. But yeah, this is my kind of like, I'm not sure where I got this idea, but I wanted to, I had it gotten a computer i think like a year and a half before this but i never had used it for design and 4ad von oliver and chris big like notoriously never used computers so it was still all paced up as of you know 1993 and i think by 95 i just had this desire to you know design the air miami records like i had designed almost every other unrest thing except for the 4ad stuff so somehow they let me do it and i think it was like june of 95 and i bought like a scanner and i bought the soft like designing software and somehow designed this thing in like two weeks without having any instruction on how to use the software and it's kind of like one of my early computer designs it's the first well, was the first one but it's one that i can look back on and not wince at because i think there was some very uh computery looking ones that were not super great is this, I wouldn't say the first step, but this is a major step then in you deciding that there's something else that you need to be doing to pull money down? Doing this album cover? Yeah. I mean, I just wanted to like design every album cover. So it had nothing to do with money. I mean, I didn't get paid for doing it. <laughs> in other words, did it spark a realization that, hey, there's something here that I could do and be just as happy, if not happier, than using music as my main source of income? Team Beat was run out of the house, the Team Beat house. Most of the house was like offices and warehouse and things like that. And there were some bedrooms as well. But we had a UPS subscription. So every day the UPS driver would come by to pick up boxes to send out to the distributors. Even if we didn't have anything, he would pull up just to see if we had anything. So my escape plan or my you know fallback plan was to be a UPS driver. And then I think at some point when I wasn't in a band that was constantly touring and maybe rents were going up and maybe they kicked us out of the Team Beat house and it was going to get sold and things like that were happening and I did need some income, I was thinking, oh, I'd, maybe I can get a job designing things because I have these album covers I've designed. So are you thinking I need to augment what I'm doing here? I mean, late, much later than this, but yeah. Much later. Okay. So at not this point, not much later, you're, but a few years. So at this point, you're not thinking I need another gig. You're thinking I just want to stab at designing this. I think I could do a good job. Yeah. I mean, I designed. It's not like the first time I designed anything. I mean, I'd already designed probably like a hundred covers before that. I think the only thing I had to do was convince 4AD, who had their in-house design department, that they would let some guy who doesn't know what he's doing design one of the record covers. Well, I mean, you really did a great job. The packaging on this. Thanks. It really feels of a piece. It feels like you're, you are you know what you're signing up for before you start playing it. Everything's reflected in how you put it together. And I love the record. Really just because of just a bunch of X-Factor things. My life was pretty fucked up at that time. I tried to make a feature film and I got about halfway through production and had to stop. So I actually filed for bankruptcy, then rescinded the papers before they were ever submitted. Wow. Needless to say, at that time, I kind of lost track of some things that previous to that had been the core of my existence. Like, when the fuck is the next Mark Robinson 7-inch coming out? All of a sudden, <laughs> life rained down a shitstorm on me, and I lost track a little bit. 
So Me, Me, Me was your last release where I was keeping track of every last shred of bric-a-brac that was coming down Mm -hmm. the team beat bike. And so there's really no reason why I didn't continue hanging. This is not an apology, but it's an explanation because Mm -hmm. there wasn't like you release something that sucked and I said, fuck that, I'm out of here. You know, Me, 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 five stars unquestionably for me. What do you give this? by the way uh i don't know i like it <laughs> but i mean it's the first thing where we actually had like a real recorded in a real studio the real producer and a guy who kind of we melded together well kind of like a 4.8 yeah 4.8 wow i think that's the highest thing so you like this better than every unrest record i don't know well what were the other scores should we reevaluate? i'm not, I'm not no fucking way okay. <laughs> but i believe this is the highest rating you've given something yet okay there's nothing on this that i don't think is solid what did i give cherry cherry Oh, the album. You're not, there's nothing that's not solid. Okay. Yeah, there's nothing on this that is not totally solid. So, War Miami May, I had never heard this. Also, Pucker and Plastic outtakes that were... See-through plastic. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, I don't know if this is on purpose, but the verses of War Miami May are a dead ringer for the verses of Blood, Sweat, and Tears, You've Made Me So Very Happy. Is that on purpose? No. Okay. You mean the melody? Oh, yeah. Did you read that or did you figure that out nope. yourself? No, no, no. I didn't read it. Okay. I've never seen that. I think you're anymore. the first, you're the first one. You're the, well, the second one. I'm the second person the second to tell person. you that? Yeah. So the head of 4AD, um, Ivo Watts Russell, really liked that one and put it in the original sequence on side one, I believe. And then since the record was coming out, I think it was independently distributed, but it was still under this like Warner reprise umbrella, even though it was independently distributed. There was some person at Warner Brothers who I guess would listen to every record and to make sure there was no like legal issues. <laughs> and so apparently he thought that that sounded like that song that you're talking about, that one section. And I totally agree. It does sound like that completely unintentional, maybe subliminal. I don't know. So that was off the record. Yeah, it really does. And, and, you know, I don't think most of these things are on purpose, just in general. But Special Angel, another amazing song. It feels to me like if Beat Happening got super focused on being in the pocket. And it's like, it feels like your speaking voice. So totally disarming in a way that always made me incredibly jealous of people who had dimples because you can get away with so much more in your life. Your speaking voice is like that. That's like, how it like hits Like the way me. I sing on that, on that, interesting. Yeah, the, the way you talk as well is so disarmingly upfront, like what you see is what you get kind of thing, that I feel like <laughs> you could get away with murder, dude. Um, and the tom rolls on Special Angel are in huh. perfect touch. The duet singing between you and Bridget, very swoon-worthy, and that brings me back every time. I love, love that song. Afternoon Train is... A terrific counterpoint to the certainly to the unrest version which i had not heard before this trawl dolphin expressway one of my favorite songs on the record the blazing guitar tone that kicks it in always got me right where it counts and i can always feel the emotion that's inherent in it bridget's babas on the on the verse breaks that's me top. is it that's really me, baby yeah no way wow <laughs> cool what i really love about that is that those babas are teutonic and heart tugging in equal measure hmm. so there's a displaced standoffishness and an inclusiveness to it that i really love wow as sweet as a candy bar is awesome like a uh, new wave with a bit of a punk slant i always kind of think of that as the idea 
for the band we will maybe talk about later, yes. uh, Flin, Flin Flon. Certainly your vocal style. Neely, you know, uh, when you swear, you do it really, really well. Especially when we were talking the other day about Cherry Cremon, and all of a sudden I realized that you may actually have things that make you blanch that I could say. I would never have known or guessed that based on your very well-deployed use of profanity. Some people, when they swear in song, they totally cannot pull it off, and it sounds like they're trying to reach the back row or in organically produce some kind mm -hmm. of reaction. The usage of profanity in Neely is so perfect. It's perfect. Like I said, initially, it was my favorite on the record. And your strum style on Neely is exactly what drew me to you initially. It's also like a textbook version of it, too. That inassailable strumming hand. I love Neely. Did you skip over You Sweet Little Heartbreaker? I did. Okay, Not because wow. I don't like it. I actually like it a lot. <laughs> okay. I don't know. I'm just trying to be cognizant of your time. <laughs> oh, sure. No, I was uh, just wondering because you keep talking about how my fast drumming arm. And with that one, my arm could not keep up. Oh, was so it we too actually fast had to, uh, Yeah, we actually had to... I had to sit in the control room and we had to keep tracking and tracking because I could only play it for like 20 to 30 seconds at a time because <laughs> it was so fast. Yeah, everything straight through to the end of the record is just amazing. Bubble Shield's great. I do think the stuff that you left off actually was, you know, wound up, I, I think, being a good decision. See-Through Plastic is another outtake that was later included. And again, I think the most important thing about the record or its most steadfast feature is that really super bright energy field. And I feel like mm -hmm. the stuff that you kept off would have violated that. Hmm. Just one douche's opinion. But I believe that, <laughs> you know, pucker, see-through plastic, it would have added some perfect teeth style, slowed down kind mm. of stuff. Interesting. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The one thing I want to talk about before we liquefy our throats here is Phil Krauth's drum set was used on the record. So you mm -hmm. thank him. I'm not trying to create a thing where there wasn't any, but you guys are old friends. You break up mm -hmm. a band and you reform it with everything intact, including his kit. And the only thing that's not there is him. He had to have been bummed about that. I don't know. I hope not. You guys are still close friends, right? I would imagine, right? Because yeah. 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 And it never came up in conversation. No, he's like secretly harboring some evil thoughts about me. I don't know if you know this, but he was in Air Miami as well, but just not at that moment. Yeah. And so this is another yeah. thing I wanted to bring up to you is like the last couple shows you had Phil in as drummer and yeah. you, quote, always left the door open. In other words, there were no official doors shutting. I'm paraphrasing you. And it's okay. later on in my notes. But you had said something to the effect that the door was never closed. Like the door is open uh, for what? For you guys playing together again. Except for maybe it's Reno. You never played with Phil again, right? I don't know. Did I ever play on one of his solo records? Maybe not. I don't know. I was trying to get Phil in the studio just like a couple months ago. He couldn't make it. So hopefully at Christmas, we're going to be back in the studio. <laughs> really? For what in particular? For the Fang Wizard Party Milk slash next name that I cannot reveal at this time. God damn it. Um, <laughs> well, that's cool. That's exciting. Maybe uh, I should reveal it because no one knows who we are anyway. So the uncomfortable police is the next. Is the oh, next that name. is but we should great, dude. All right. So first question, why was Phil back on drums? And doesn't Why that was he that back on drums? On, you mean that, on live shows? No, he was he played on this in the credits at least. Drums. Oh. oh, you know what? Drums provided by Phil Krauth means the drum kit, right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, it says, got it. Gabriel Stout drums. Right? Okay, so drums provided by. Got it. It is confusing. 
Okay, so and that's fucking it. Bye, bye, Air Miami. I'm not gonna cry because it's over. I'm gonna smile because it happened. Now, didn't <laughs> uh, so the last couple shows it was Phil drumming there. How did that come about? And didn't it cross your mind at that time? Like this is my chance. The old gang's back, and now's my moment to just fucking go for it. Did that cross your mind? No. All right, that about does it. Stay tuned because next week brings the exciting conclusion of the Mark Robinson series, The Craziest of Them All, Part 4, My Dinner with Mark. A heartfelt discography thanks goes out to my beautiful wife and son, Jen and Mason, Mark Robinson, Rudy Fishman, Becky Boyd, Teen Beat Records, my incredibly loyal fans, and especially the entire Patreon community, the Soldiers of Sound. I love every last one of you, and this show would not exist without you, my friends. Speaking of friends, it's high time for some new ones. They're in our Facebook group, Discography Soldiers of Sound. That's the best way to find out what's coming up on the show, but there's a hell of a lot more. You get recaps of the day in music history, the ability to pitch questions to guests, polls that put you in the driver's seat on guest and band decisions, and access to a thriving creative hub if you're looking for a collaborator. So make sure you don't miss out. You can find the link to the Discography Soldiers of Sound Facebook page right there in the show notes. And if you don't mess with the Zuck, no sweat. Just email me at info at discography.com and I'll keep you in the loop. So now that it's done and you want more, another way to dive even deeper into the Gen X flag wavers of 1990s indie alternative gold is to leap headfirst into the David Pajo series, including the man himself rating Slint's discography. That's episodes 94 to 101. No Ages Randy Randall rating the Jesus Lizard. That's 70 and 71. My interview with No Ages Randy Randall. That's episode 88. The Bob Nastanovich rates pavement series from 49 to 58 nirvana episode 30 the replacements with bob Mayer, 28 and 29 and number 18 the pixies also episodes 131 to 133 is will hart rating the olivia tremor control and of course you also won't want to miss our mark robinson series which so far encompasses episodes 128 130 135 and the next one 136 join us during the upcoming week. This Sunday, you can expect another deliriously sociopathic entry of Rudy Fishman's Discography Soldiers of Sound podcast. These are real people with talent and a burning fire deep inside, just like you and I. Get to know your new music-obsessed friends. And then, starting early in the week, I'll be rolling out the hugely extended director's cuts of the upcoming Mark Robinson episode for our Patreon majors and lieutenants. And of course, be sure to mark your calendars, because next Next Friday, March 1st, we're coming at you with Mark Robinson Part 4, My Dinner with Mark. Trust me, you're not going to want to miss it. And so, from now till then, don't let our youth go to waste, lads and ladies. It's Discography. Osiris.